Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah, wa alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. So in this series of paradigms of leadership, we have been more recently looking at some more recent figures. Not because uh, things get better historically, usually a rule of entropy seems to apply, but because uh, it tends to be easier for us to uh, empathise with, learn from people who to some extent inhabit a world that's a bit like our own. So we looked at uh, Abdul Hadi Agweli, uh, in many ways the founder of <coughs> modern European Islam, and then we looked at uh, Sheikh Ahmad Bullock, first imam of a mosque in Oxford, uh, and uh, even though they are not Imam al-Bukhari or Shah Baha al-Din Naqshband or Imam al-Ghazali, the recentness of their story somehow brings them to life more vividly. So I'm going to continue along those lines today by speaking about uh, a parallel life, one which in some ways intersects with theirs, uh, but which reflects a, a different pattern not a pattern of light coming to the west, but of something moving in the opposite direction, a uh, rather less common process. So I'm going to be speaking about John Gilbert Leonard, also known as uh, Shahidullah Faridi. It's uh, not always easy to determine the details of his life, so to do the boring historian's thing and to grumble about the sources, even though he dies in 1978 and one can still meet people who knew him, uh, he never wrote or spoke much about himself. This is often a problem dealing with uh, people whose minds are not on themselves. There's no autobiography. Seldom does he make autobiographical remarks in his Malfour's his public pronouncements. Uh, but there has been recently um, a very nice, well-researched biography of him by Sikandar and Samina Ajam, published in Karachi. Uh, and unfortunately, you can't get it here even by the wiles of Amazon. Um, it's really hard to get hold of, but maybe, inshallah, it will reach us one day. But you can buy it in bookshops in Pakistan, and I would recommend it. Uh, also, over the years, as my sort of, uh, interest in him has become known, I've been communicated with by some people who knew him or whose families knew him, who've shared with me certain anecdotes uh, and reports which have helped to fill in uh, my picture of his life. Um, so, let us proceed with the biography and indicates aspects of his leadership, as we've said, is not quite the Islamic word, but the, the way in which he was regarded as a leader um, by what came to be many, many thousands of people and a legacy that continues to this day. So he is British and his father uh, was born in Sydney but spends most of his life in England. This is William Leonard, born in 1888. Father serves in World War I in the military police, but uh, leaves the army early because of 
deafness goes into business and becomes a hugely successful businessman in the paper manufacturing trade. Uh, and also a property speculator, becomes head of the European Paper Merchants Association, which I believe is still in existence. In 1911, he marries the Sheikh's mother, Ruth Kathleen Leonard, and the union is blessed with three sons and a daughter. Um, the last of them to die, the daughter Kathleen, died in 2001 uh, in Paris, where she was living uh, in conditions of some prosperity. Uh, they had a very large house, as you would expect, in Willesden. The house was bombed during the war. It seems no longer to be in existence. 234 Willesden Lane. So no possibility of a blue plaque there, unfortunately. Or a green plaque, perhaps. Uh, might be interesting. Um, and so the middle son, the second son, John Gilbert, is born on the 11th of March 1915 and is two years younger than his older brother, William. But the two are very, very close. It doesn't always happen with siblings, but in their case, it's an important aspect of their uh, spiritual growth together. Uh, they're not twins, but in many ways, uh, they are uh, more than just siblings. Uh, we are told that when they were young, they used to go out for walks together, that they had a propensity for nature. They didn't like going in their father's car with his driver. They preferred to walk. Uh, all three boys were sent to Shrewsbury School in the 1920s. Shrewsbury School, one of those ancient English public schools. I think Michael Heseltine was there, people like that. An establishment uh, public school. Um, and... He does the usual things in the school. The records indicate that he was in the school cricket team, in the classical sixth, so he was a classicist, a Grecian, a Latinist, uh, did training in the officers' training corps. Um, divinity and chapel were compulsory, so he knew his Bible. Very much a product of the uh, heyday of the British system. But these are also the, the Roaring Twenties, the age of post-war uh, flapper, let it all hang out, hedonism. Uh, and there are early signs that the two of them, possibly through their communing with nature, but not through any kind of family urging, because it seems that the parents were not observant Catholics, even though there was a kind of default Catholicism in the air. And of course, Shrewsbury is an Anglican foundation. Uh, that they start reading religious stuff together and theology. So later on, he writes things like this. God's oneness and faith are part of our nature. He's talking about the fitra. Sometimes this inspiration arises in our hearts, a kind of inner invitation. Man's soul is inclined towards oneness. He goes to Oxford, becomes an undergraduate. Serious-minded young man, and begins a correspondence with none other than René Guénon, as early as 1934, and he is only 19 at the time. Uh, but Guénon is happy to reply. Guénon, you may recall, is the French comparative religionist who is converted to Islam and initiated into the Shadali Tariqa by Ivan Agueli, who we spoke about a lecture or two ago. So there's a connection there. And Guénon continues to pop up in the story of uh, significant 20th century uh, European Muslims. Uh, <coughs> I indicated the uh, line 
that uh, links some modern-day European Muslims like Charles André Gillis, whose books are quite influential, through Mustafa Valsan, back to Guénon, back to Agueli, back to Sheikh Abdulrahman Ali Shal Kabir, back to Abdul Qadir al-Jazairi, with his famous letter to the French in which he proposes that the East-West conflict can be turned into some, something more positive with both sides retaining their own spiritual integrity. And that sort of dialogical authenticity has often characterized the works of many uh, European Muslim authors. So, uh, and incidentally, Genor is still so influential. Um, Prince Charles reads Genor, Steve Bannon reads Genor, all kinds of people, not just uh, people on the Looney Tunes right, but um, uh, still in print and influential. Sheikh Abdul Wahid Yahya. Um, and the significance of Genor tends to be that unlike a lot of syncretistic comparative religionists, proto-New Age thinkers, Genor was insistent that in order to make spiritual growth, you have to make a significant spiritual commitment to a single religion. This chop and change New Age thing, a little bit of yoga, a little bit of feng shui, uh, perhaps a bit of uh, hippie Christianity mixed up together to suit the zeitgeist of the 1960s is absolutely not uh, what tradition, with a capital T, is all about. And Genor's works uh, have achieved that more than I think they've achieved uh, anything else. Uh, just last week I was on a train to Leeds, got talking to a young Cameroonian guy called Ebenezer. <laughs> Never met an Ebenezer before. And he was a great fan of Genor. So we were talking about Genor and what Genor made of Martinism and Freemasonry and interesting. So a lot of people still. And because of you know, the guy was brought up a Christian, but you can't read Genor and be Islamophobic. <laughs> Genor's view is that if you're seriously interested in religion in the modern age, the practices of Islam are where you have to go because they're more intact. And this is a common theme for. Uh, European Islam, I think. Uh, if you look at John Butt's new autobiography, A Talib's Tale, uh, which is an interesting account of how he also brought up a Catholic, went to Stonyhurst, the Jesuit school, and was actually thrown out of Stonyhurst. Um, uh, lost his interest in Catholic Christianity after Vatican II in the mid-1960s when they changed the liturgy, the Latin Mass with all of its of bling and splendor, and reverence was gone to be replaced by various sort of slightly Protestantized vernacular liturgies. Um, and he said after that he knew that Catholicism wasn't spiritually serious. You can imagine what a fuss Muslims would make if some council of muftis decided, oh, in future you're going to read your namaz in English, and the imam is going to be facing the congregation not with the congregation facing the divine mystery and all kinds of other up-to-date withitry innovations, hearts would be broken. But thankfully, we don't have a Vatican or a papacy. Nobody has the right to fiddle with our core practices in that way. Pope Francis is putting the boot in very spectacularly with a new motu proprio that he issued a few months ago that's got the Latin Mass Society in tears. It's a big kerfuffle if you look at Catholic websites. They feel that they're losing something that they've always had to be replaced by something <coughs> mediocre and modern. But Genor's point was that you can't do that to Islam. Nobody does it to Islam 
because the liturgy is intact and that's why it's the appropriate place for spiritually serious people in this age because its, ta- its forms are intact. Anyway, so Ginot, interestingly, is an early influence uh, and at that time Ginot wasn't translated into uh, English and the books hadn't been written yet. This is the mid-1930s and Ginot dies in 20 years later. Uh, so, yeah, a serious-minded young man in Oxford starts reading Orientalist texts as well of different traditions, uh, but particularly this is one of the golden ages of Islamic studies, Sufi translation, uh, particularly Margaret Smith and Reynold Nicholson here in Cambridge. Smith, I think, was also at Girton for a while, kind of tweedy lady who could be seen cycling around on her way to church while writing books about Rabe al-Adawiyah. Um, but one of the first people to bring that to the light of a non-specialist public. And Nicholson, of course, just 100 yards from here, Harvey Road, translated the Masnavi into English, which has always been a kind of source of spiritual radiation attracting all manner of people. One of the great events of Oriental studies, really, and one of the few areas in which it's impacted a very wide public has been Nicholson's translation of the Masnavi. But uh, the main influence seems to have been Nicholson's earlier translation, which was of the Keshf al-Mahjub of al-Hujwiri, which becomes an important text for Leonard Stroke Faridi for the rest of his life. this is Ali bin Uthman Hujwiri, dies in 1072, a very early Persian Sufi manual. So um, Faridi, eventually with his disciples in Karachi, teaches Hujwiri extensively, um, reading it in Persian usually, and then expounding it in Urdu. So this is one of the things that he says later on. Hujwiri's mode of exposition is evident usually starts with relevant quotations from the Qur'an and the traditions of the Holy Prophet and then proceeds to his own analysis, interspersed with numerous references to the dicta of the saints. He seems to have very definite views on every aspect of the spiritual way, but shows no (coughs) narrow-mindedness and always gives full mention to any differing opinions. He appears to be a master of dogmatic theology, ilm al-kalam, and frequently quotes its judgments and argumentations throughout the book. So the advantage of this uh, type of text is that it absolutely roots the higher discourse of tasawwuf in the outward armature of the religion. (coughs) Qur'an, hadith, kalam, etc. Showing the two as two halves of a single beautiful whole. (coughs) So he's in Oxford. And incidentally, um, casting our minds back to the story of Ahmad Bullock, only eight years later, Ahmad Bullock converts in Oxford during the war. Um, But there's no evidence that I've been able to determine that they ever met each other. (coughs) Uh, Sirdar Iqbal Ali Shah, again you might remember from the previous lecture, wrote the first book really that's serious in an uh, introductory kind of way to Sufism in 1933, which is really quite early. This is the father of Idris Shah. And he comes to live in Oxford, but later he comes to escape the Blitz. So that's some way down the line. (coughs) So comparative religion 
is his thing, with a particular interest in these amazing Sufi classics. And while an undergraduate, he starts to write a dissertation, which seems to have been on theosophy. Quite a good choice. Theosophy is riding high at the time. Lots of people are reading Madame Blavatsky, Isis Unveiled, and that strange kind of Vedanta-type spiritualist, reincarnationist, sub-Christian thing that <coughs> uh, morphed in various ways, divided into various ways, but is still a going concern. And it seems that, because Genor had actually written to refute the Theosophists, uh, that uh, Leonard was also writing a kind of refutation of Madame Blavatsky. Um, he came across Yusuf Ali's translation of the Qur'an. He decided that since all of the great spiritual writers of the world, the one thing they agree on is that ultimate reality is one and that you cannot attribute any internal differentiation to it, that the Trinity was unacceptable as a spiritual teaching. He calls it unacceptable. And then he <coughs> meets some Indian Muslims in London first Muslims he meets, it seems. Uh, and then he reflects later on on the fact that he didn't seem to share the general race and religious prejudice that was kind of the default in England at the time. So this is what he writes later, a rare autobiographical anecdote. We were three brothers, one older and one younger. It is often the case that the middle child falls out of favour and does not remain the centre of attention. However, it was certainly the case with me that no matter how much I was disregarded, when it came to Islam, my feelings were protected from the influence of my Western prejudice. So he's interested in these Indians, open-minded, listens. He's already had his heart melted and his curiosity piqued by his reading of Hujwiri in particular. Uh, he is not uh, an emotive type of person and he doesn't become an ecstatic type of dervish ever. He's always sober. Uh, so he has these long nocturnal discussions in Oxford in his rooms with his brother about religion, the meaning of life. Uh, now, thanks to translations, one can access the, uh, the primary texts of the great world religions through the Pali Text Society and these Orientalist translations. And uh, in that curious and earnest age, and this isn't just Brideshead revisited, but there are some serious young minds in Oxford as well, they were discussing, well, what are we going to do if we can't accept the triune understanding of ultimate reality, which is our birthright and what we studied at Shrewsbury, what are we going to do? Um, we don't know the details of that process, but certainly we know that in October of 1936, he and his brother both take the train together to Woking, the little mosque there, and they take their shahada together. We don't really know who it was with. Some stories say it was Abdullah Yusuf Ali, who was living in London at the time, the translator of the Quran. Others say that it was Maulana Aftabuddin. There's lots of different accounts. Maybe it doesn't matter so much. Uh, but they've taken their shahada, but immediately, of course, they face big difficulties in London, in Oxford. There's no halal anything. Even the bread is always baked with lard, almost no mosques. It was a very challenging experience for these two earnest, young, rather bookish converts. But they recognised, having read their Hujviri, 
that their real difficulty was the lack of a teacher, not just somebody to teach them the wudu, uh, but uh, a spiritual guide. That's really what had drawn them into Islam. So later on, he writes this uh, when he speaks of the indispensability of a spiritual sheikh. It is certainly imperative in the sense that without it, many latent qualities will never be developed and they will never bloom into that perfection of which they are truly capable. They will be human beings, maybe worthy ones in their own way, but they will have been deprived of the countless virtues and blessings of knowledge which were their birthright and which their God-given nature demanded. They will be like stunted trees, still deserving, no doubt, the name of a tree, but lacking the joy of harmonious expansion and displaying themselves in that grand apparel which is their gift from the court of divine beauty. In the Sufi tradition and following Hujwiri, he's absolutely convinced that you uh, can only really grow into what your creator has made you to be if you have somebody who can help you to grow, who can show you the way who can offer you a mirror in which to contemplate your own imperfections and to intuit the way you are made to be and can guide you, interpret dreams, the traditional Sheikh Murid relationship, um, which becomes the, the guiding principle of most of the rest of his life. Okay, so let's pause at this point and do one of my usual meandering detours into another life. Uh, which is not a Muslim life, so it can't be included in this series, <coughs> uh, but a, if you like, a more stunted life. That's not too harsh a word, I think. Uh, and that's the life of somebody called J.G. Bennett, much better known in esoteric spirituality circles in the UK. When I was an undergraduate, there was a J.G. Bennett reading group in Cambridge, and they would sit on the floor and read his... Uh, his writings, and it, it continues to be <coughs> a big thing for many, uh, sometimes slightly silver-headed uh, seekers of a certain generation. So J.G. Bennett is more or less a contemporary of Faridi, and there are interesting parallels. And he also serves as a kind of, uh, perhaps even slightly tragic, lesson in what happens when Genel's advice to root oneself in a particular exoteric form, in its fullness and in its rigour and its discipline, is not heeded. The very frequent Western desire to be free of organised religion, to look down upon the, the clergy and the formalists and the mullahs from a position of evident but self-satisfied superiority. The enlightenment idea that we are happy when we are authentic and we are authentic when we comply to our own selves rather than to the forms that were originated in another place and time by other selves. And this is one of the besetting problems of the New Age movement in particular, which says that to be spiritually free, you have to be yourself. That's the exact inversion of all traditional spiritual teaching, which is that the self in its present state is really bad news, uh, a trap, an illusion, gravitational, a black hole for passions, to be resisted, not, not to be experienced as one's normative self. You might say the abolition of the traditional understanding that there is nafs and ruh, which is absolutely universal, anima, numa, nefesh, loach, 
All the traditions have this, that there is a false self which veils a true self. It's, it's the most, it's the first teaching, really. But the New Age thing, and a lot of Western spiritual dabbling, has not been content with that and a certain ability to look down one's nose at formal religious practitioners has caused a lot of people to uh, not to experience, not to grow into, into this fullness that uh, uh, Faridi described. So Bennett, uh, lots of books by him, including an interesting one in which he depicts his discussions with various Sufi masters who he met. This is one of the editions of his autobiography, <coughs> which is a spiritual journey which doesn't really have uh, a culmination or a conclusion or an ending, although he is a pneumatic type. That is to say, he is intrinsically attracted towards spiritual things. He's not a worldling. He's really interested in holy places, holy texts, holy people, and pings around like uh, a ball on a pinball table from spiritual magnet to spiritual magnet. So I want to, because I think the comparison is, is useful and so many people even today continue you know, to get trapped by their determination to find freedom through their own nafs's autonomy, that their native talents are uh, underused. So let me read a little bit from his actually rather interesting, although perhaps a rather long autobiography. Now, Bennett uh, during the First World War, was kind of in charge of the police in Istanbul after the Ottomans had let the British in. Um, very traumatic time for Turkey. They'd lost the war. They'd also lost the Balkan provinces in 1912. But Ataturk was not yet there. So it's uh, a truncated Turkey, a bruised Turkey, but you can still go to all of the Sufi ceremonies and meet the theologians. Hagia Sophia is still a mosque. So he's able to see this. And as a spiritually interested, non-prejudiced person, um, he finds some interesting encounters. So... This is uh, part of his account of the, the Mevlevi ceremony in Istanbul. This is the Mevlevi zikr, or pointing of the soul towards God. It symbolizes the paradisal state of the soul when it leaves the body and enters the world of the perfected man, the insani kamil. Later I learned how to perform the zikr myself and could verify the state of beatitude, quite devoid of excitement which it engenders. The zikr is repeated three times. For the third and last time, the music changed into a strong and stately rhythm, much less dramatic than before. This time the sheikh himself took part. For no reason that I could understand, I began to weep. I noticed that most of the others looking on were sobbing too. Nothing new seemed to have happened, but everything had changed. All too soon the dhikr ended and the dervishes instantly stopped, bowed three times and slowly filed out. I watched each face as they went by, and it seemed to me that never before had I seen such serenity. <clears throat> and then when he gets to know the dervishes, he recounts, he recalls a kind of mystical experience that he'd had, at least an out-of-body experience when he was in fighting in the trenches in the First World War and was seriously wounded and had this out-of-body experience for six days in which he was kind of floating around look at it, looking at his body as the surgeons were doing their work. Out-of-body experiences are very generally reported in a variety of cultures after a kind of huge traumatic shock to the metabolism. And that seems to have been what awakened him to the traditionally very obvious point, which is that we're not 
just bodies with a consciousness, but we're souls as well as bodies. Um, and of course, the purpose of the prayer is to hold the two together, you might say. We're very embodied in our forms of worship. I knew a uh, Muslim girl who'd kind of fallen away from the religion and was living with her boyfriend as an undergraduate. And she was in a catastrophic motor accident and kind of died, but was brought back. <coughs> and she told me how she'd have these out-of-body experiences. She'd be kind of, during the surgical procedure, looking down on her own body and kind of gently descending into it. She was kind of really <laughs> freaked out by this. <coughs> um, and she continued to have those experiences after she'd um, been sent home. <coughs> so he told her, well, just start the prayer again. You know how to do it. And she said, yeah, that kind of pulled. She stopped those experiences afterwards because uh, it's, not, it's not a good experience to have that. The two are not supposed to be separate while you're still alive. Anyway, when I became used to their way of dealing with questions, I asked one wise old dervish about my experience of 21st of March 1918 when I was wounded in France. He listened very carefully and asked me one or two questions which reminded me of features of the experience that I had forgotten. He said the muqabala, this is the Mavlavi ceremony, has the effect of bringing us into the same state where all fear of death disappears. We know that if we die at that moment, we shall experience only bliss. So he finds that these people already know about this type of experience, and he can see from his own eyes and from his own experience that this is a true sacred tradition. <coughs> the Muslim religion was beginning to interest me very much. As a boy, I had been revolted by the quarrels of the Christian churches. At my school, we had two teachers of divinity, one very high church and the other very low church of England. The high churchman was a mild but inept old clergyman, but the low churchman was a ruthless fanatic. He spoke of the Roman Catholic Church in terms that no schoolboy should be allowed to hear. We had, moreover, a succession of missionary lecturers who spoke to us with such an accent of self-righteousness about the heathen and their miserable state that I and many others wanted to become heathens on the spot. When I spoke to my parents, my mother, who hated hypocrisy, said, most Englishmen are hypocrites, especially English priests. As a boy, my father had been at Lansing College and had experienced a religious conversion. Afterwards, he had reacted against institutional religion and had done his best to present us as children from acquiring any fixed beliefs against which we might afterwards revolt. <coughs> so the kind of uh, reflex against uh, organised religion. And then he talks about... He's thinking about Islam, but he sees the... Tarawih prayers in Hagia Sophia and gives an amazing description of it. And he says, looking at it from a gallery, there's 10,000 people in the mosque. And he says, when everybody in the Tarawih, their heads hit the ground, you could actually feel that large building shaking slightly. It was such, a, such majesty. Yeah. What could I make of it? I went out into the open air. All Istanbul was lit by oil lamps and candles festooned from minaret to minaret, from roof to roof everywhere. An incomparably beautiful city was dying. Okay, so he sees this is the end of the Ottoman world, and this religious thing is part of that. Can he join it when it's dying? Soon there would be no sultan living at Yildiz, it's the palace. <coughs> I could not know how great the changes were to be, how soon the fez was to disappear with the women's veil. Soon the muezzin would call to prayer wearing a bowler hat, by the edict of a dictator and a hater of religion. 
Soon the dervishes were to disappear from the streets, the tekis to be closed, and their leading men exiled. I was witnessing the death of an epoch, but I did not know it. I only knew that I was filled with a heartbreaking sadness. What was, where was I to go? I had just written to the warden of my college in Oxford to say that I would not take up my scholarship. I'd been recommended for the staff college, and yet I knew that an army courier was impossible for me. I could not leave everything and become a dervish. The dervishes belonged to the dying world. They were a reminder that once men had known how to live to the full inwardly as well as outwardly, but it was only too obvious that the ancient fire had died. So that's another theme that people think, well, this oriental culture is coming to an end. Therefore, I have to look for something else, perhaps, in the West. And um, Bennett then has this complex career. He attaches himself to Gurdjieff in Paris and becomes Gurdjieff representative in England. And there's accounts in the book of you know, the frequent outrageousness of Gurdjieff, who'd been with some Sufi teachers in Central Asia, but wasn't compliant in any way. He wasn't a Muslim, but he was of... Uh, sort of mixed Armenian, Russian, Georgian ancestry. And they would have these enormous sort of drunken, um, slightly promiscuous banquets in his flat in Paris where the spiritual wisdom was allegedly dispensed. So Bennett becomes his representative in England for this antinomian, non-organised religion sort of spirituality, gets quite hurt by it, um, damaged. Uh, and then sells Gurdjieff's property, Coombe Springs, to Idris Shah, who becomes another person who he thinks might be very significant. And then he gets into Subud and kind of bounces around with groups that allow people not to accept the second Shahada. <coughs> so, but you can see throughout his life, this is much later, um, this is in the 1950s, he's wandering around the old dervish lodges, which now are closed, of course. Uh, and then he says... I went at dusk to the great Soleimaniye Mosque, the youthful masterpiece of Sinan of Kayseri, one of the world's greatest architects and mathematicians. My vision had grown more sensitive with the years, and I stood upon the outer wall enraptured with the subtle marvels of its domes and interlocking turrets, cascading down and down in a harmony that seemed to unite earth and heaven. How lifeless beside this prodigious building is our great St. Paul's on Ludgate Hill, or the massive, meaningless church of St. Peter's in Rome. In the supreme work of art, Sinan Mi'amar fulfilled his promise to Suleiman the Magnificent that he would outdo the Byzantine architects of Santa Sophia. I went inside and heard the voice of the Muezzin chanting verses of the Quran. Once again, the purity of the acoustics brought tears to my eyes, but now I was aware of a sound within the sound and realized that the architect had built a spiritual temple within an earthly temple. So for decades he's been hanging around in love with Islam and in love with the saints who he knows are saints, but still something within him, a certain Western pride, a certain determination not to submit, has kept him outside the threshold. And then, last quote I want is, uh, he goes to Syria and meets Sheikh Abdullah Daghistani, who's one of the great uh, uh, renewers of the Naqshbandi tariqa in the 20th century. <coughs> and again, he has experience after experience with Daristani that shows that you know, this is a real saint who knows more than one would naturally do so. The sheikh was waiting for me on the roof of his house. 
It was high up above the city, commanding a superb panorama. Abdullah Daristani was of middle height with a white beard, but looked far younger than the 75 years attributed to him. I felt at ease from the start, and very soon I experienced a great happiness that seemed to fill the place. I knew that I was in the presence of a really good man. After the usual salutations and compliments of the excellence of my Turkish, he astonished me by saying, why did you not bring the lady sister who is with you? I have a message for her as well as you. It seemed unlikely that anyone could have told him about Elizabeth, it's his wife. We'd walked straight to his house and my guide had left me at the door without speaking to anyone. I replied that as he was a Muslim, I did not think he would wish to speak with a woman. He said very simply, why not? Such customs are for the protection of the foolish. They do not concern me. Next time you pass through Damascus, will you bring her to see me? I promised to do so if the opportunity came. We sat for a long time in silence, watching the ancient city. When he began to speak, I found it hard to come out of the deep reverie into which I had fallen. He was saying, I was expecting someone today, but I did not know it would be you. A few nights ago, an angel came to my room and told me that you had come to visit me, that I was to give you three messages. You have asked God for guidance about your wife. She is in God's keeping. You have tried to help her, but this is wrong. You disturb the work that God is doing in her soul. There is no cause for anxiety about her, but it is useless for you to try to understand. Second message concerns your house. You've asked God for guidance as to whether you should go your way or follow others. You must trust yourself. You'll be persecuted by the Armenians, but you must not be afraid. You have to attract many people to you. You must not hesitate even if other people are angry. He felt silent again. I was astonished at the two messages, for it was perfectly true that I had prayed for guidance on just those two questions. If he was right, then the way before me was clear. So, and then various other things that he talks about. I mean, the point is that throughout the book, he is relating uh, his experiences with some of the greatest saints of the uh, 20th century and seeing that Abdullah Daristani knows what he has been praying for. This wasn't even an appointment. He just went on the hope that he'd see him, but the sheikh was waiting for him and knew that he should have brought his wife. And again and again, he sees these kind of sheikhly phenomena, but still he doesn't take the plunge. He's kind of dancing around on the brink, doesn't dive in. Although it's said towards the end of his life, um, in his last year of his life, he actually started to perform the namaz in various ways and recognized finally. So some people say the Genonian rather obvious point that the inner kernel has to be protected by an outer shell and that everybody needs uh, sharia. So this is important, I think, because there are so many people out there who are really reading Rumi, attracted to spirituality, looking for truth. Sometimes people who have had experiences of their own. Uh, but because of the nature of the age and the cult of individualism, find it very hard to submit to an outward form. <coughs> In other words, to accept the second shahada. <coughs> so here is uh, Shahidullah Faridi later on, reflecting, as somebody's asking him a question, what about sticking to moral values without namaz and religion? Why can't you just be good and spiritual without doing this Dean stuff. Reply, this is a misconception. Some people do that in Europe especially. 
In certain historical times, there have been ethical movements, but this is illogical in a way. The moral values which they know, we say that he is good, he doesn't commit evil, doesn't steal, doesn't murder, or he doesn't cheat people, doesn't lie. But how do we know that this is good? The only knowledge we have that it is good not to steal, not to commit murder, not to lie, not to cheat, not to deceive, is through religion. The basic morality is known only through religion. Man was unable to discover these things on his own, and all societies refer their moral code to certain teachers in the past. This is the reality. You must realize that the moral view which we have in America and Europe, these other places, are all derived from Christianity. Having derived the moral values from Christianity, they now say that we don't believe in the ceremonial part of it, but only take the moral part of it. This is not the teaching of the Prophet, and you are taking one part and rejecting the other. That is unjustified. The fact is there are purposes in these things. Worship is not just an unpleasant duty which God has for no reason or other told us to perform. That is not so. The basis of all this is, as I said, the knowledge or understanding of the ultimate reality. What is the ultimate reality? Who is the supreme being? What are his characteristics or attributes as far as we can understand them? What was his purpose in creating us? What does he wish us to do? What is our ultimate destination? And so forth. In order to understand this, we have books that we read. It's been prescribed by God according to our human nature. He knows our nature much better than we do ourselves. <coughs> we have to keep reminding ourselves of God, and we must keep on expressing our sense of obedience and our sense of respect. So this is again something which is natural in man, and he has to keep on reminding himself of his loyalty. God says, if you accept me, then bow down before me. Otherwise, the human values wither away, and at some point people say that we accept moral values and leave the rest. So it's necessary to remind yourself of this. So he's very much aware of the Bennett type of <coughs> antinomian spirituality, even practicing some forms of dhikr, wazifas, and so forth, but without being able to crush the ego to the extent that one follows the outward Mohammedan forms. So the two brothers looking for a sheikh. England is not going to supply them with one. But they have the, the bug, the ishq, the yearning. So the older brother, William, starts travelling, rather as Bennett did. He goes to Turkey and to Syria, looking for a Mevlevi. After all, you're reading Rumi, you want to find a Mevlevi sheikh. But by this time, Ataturk has closed it, the main lodge that Bennett once attended in Istanbul as a police station and, and so forth. In Syria, the Mevlevis are there, but it's under French occupation. There's a lot of persecution of the Sufis there. So William actually went to Switzerland and met Fritjof Schuon, a well-known comparative religionist who died about 20 years ago, and the sort of first members of Schuon's community. Together, they went to Egypt, where it may be presumed that they met Genor. Because Genor, when he took on Islam, decided he was going to live in an Islamic context, attend dhikrs. He married uh, the daughter of a alim family of Cairo and never, I think, left, uh, left Egypt again. He had no particular interest in doing that. So they are associating with these intellectuals who are interested in some sort of perennial truth underlying all religions, but they're not really seeking a complex metaphysical philosophy, neither of them are metaphysicians. And if you read 
um, Shahid Allah's works, you can see it's very much practical and inspirational. It's about taking the disciple directly to God without dialectics. Uh, neither are they looking for something that will unite the religion somehow or another. They're only looking for God. That's their intention. They want to come to God. Now, their father in England had been friends with uh, a posh Indian, the Nawab of Bahawalpur. Hmm. He owned property in North London, quite close to the Leonard House, and some members of his court, his suite, were also in London. This is Sir Sadiq Muhammad Khan. Dies in 1966, and if you look at old BBC footage of the coronation in 1953, you can see him there looking very splendid. Um, if you can imagine a traditional uh, Indian or Pakistani bridegroom's outfit, you know the thing with the pointy shoes and the turban and so forth. If you multiply that by 10, you've got the Nawab of Bahawalpur, kind of the queen is looking a bit dowdy by comparison. But this guy is uh, upstaging the bride. Um, and the family is still going, although, of course, Bahawalpur absorbed into Pakistan. Palace is still there, I think. Noor Mahal, interesting kind of place. Um, and the, the, the Nawab's grandson is still around, Salah Din. He invites these interesting boys to India. Never mind Egypt, never mind Switzerland, Syria, Turkey. Come to India, and that's what they do. For some reason, they don't travel together. They travel separately. But they don't know where to begin. The Nawab doesn't really move in the kind of circles that they want to meet. He's in clubs and so forth and playing polo. That's not what they want. So they begin a process of kind of wandering around as seekers without having any contacts or addresses. Now, interestingly, Faridi goes off to an ashram in Bengal, a sort of ashram, which is run by Rabindranath Tagore. And his experience of Tagore and his community is an interesting milestone in his development. The place is called Shantiniketan, uh, which the Tagore family had founded, which is now morphed, still under the influence of the kind of presiding spirit of Tagore. It's a university now uh, near Calcutta. And this is where Tagore wrote some of his well-known works. Tagore, after all, the very first non-Westerner ever to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. Friend of Yeats and Eliot liked him and sort of liked him. And uh, short stories, poetry, and also an artist and a kind of syncretistic Indic philosopher. Uh, he actually wrote the National Anthem of India and also the National Anthem of Bangladesh, which is interesting. I don't know if anybody's written two national anthems. It's kind of counterintuitive, but that was what he did. Now, what's really interesting is that in that period, pre-partition and pre-BJP and pre-contemporary tensions, uh, the overlap space between the Hindu and the Muslim and all of the other groups, particularly in Bengal, which has always been the kind of intellectual centre of India, as well as for a long time the political centre, because the East England India Company make Calcutta their, their company. Bengal is where you get all of the good stuff. Uh, silk, opium, whatever the company wants to traffic in. Um, so uh, the East is where it's at, and the Tagores are big landowners. Uh, but very interesting representatives of a kind of Indian that you don't encounter so much these days. Um, Tagore's father um, knew a lot of Sufi poetry by heart. 
Persian was really the language of the Indian elite, even the Hindu elite at the time. Um, hard to imagine that now, but a lot of poetry, a lot of newspapers in Persian were being founded by Hindus. Um, uh, and was also uh, the founder of something called the Brahmo Samaj, which is a kind of Indian post-Hindu Unitarian movement, um, which was originating in the teachings of somebody called Ram Mohan Roy in the 18th century, um, who had been, again, of Hindu background, but he studied in a madrasa in Patna, knew a lot of Alm al-Kalam, apparently, dressed as a Muslim, loved the Sufi traditions of tolerance. The idea of that elite at the time, the so-called mobile Brahmins, was that in the Sufi context, you find a sort of tolerance that in the very tight uh, rule-bound universe of immobile, sort of traditional Hindu religion, you can't find even somebody from a slightly different caste or attributed to a different temple. There's often fierce rivalries where Sufism with its apparent sort of unificatory uh, ecstatic outlook seemed to be a wonderful alternative to that. In the 20th century, it tended to be something like communism or secularism or republicanism, but in the 18th and 19th century for the, the Hindu elite, it was Sufism that looked like the interesting alternative or escape hatch from the, uh, the iron cages of the the caste system. So uh, Ram Mohan Roy founds this movement, which is still very active and is considered to be the first kind of Hindu reform movement. He was interested in Unitarian Christianity. He didn't think the Trinity was interesting, but he liked the Unitarians. Uh, devoted his retirement really to the study of Rumi's Masnavi and also the, the Vedanta. Wrote a book, Tohfat al-Muahideen. Interesting, so somebody who is still a Brahman writing a book in Persian called Tohfat al-Muahideen, the gift of the monotheists. So against caste, against the God-man syndrome and the exploitations commonly attributed to it, against polytheism, more or less against reincarnation, although not necessarily. So this mutates in various ways, splits in various ways, and becomes something called the Adi Dharma, which is now the ninth largest religion in India. It's recognized as a separate religion. Bangladesh also recognizes it as a separate religion. It's not considered to be Hindu any longer. So monotheism, no godmen, no caste. It obviously reflects this Sufi influence. And his belief really was, Tagore's father's belief was that Hindu law and institutions were corrupt and only English law or Islamic law could ever unite India. Um, also, this kind of Vedantic Sufi Hafiz thing, the syncretism, was motivated by uh, a fondness for the Baal musicians, these kind of wandering multi-faith minstrels, sometimes quite outrageous, uh, which you still encounter in parts of Bengal. So, uh, Tagore had uh, a number of friends. So this is, when we're struggling to understand why somebody who's converted to Islam through Sufism and is full of the zeal of a convert wants to go to this Brahmo Samaj sort of sub-Hindu place where there aren't many Muslims. Um, uh, it's interesting to note that one of the poets who were associated in this Persian-speaking world with Tagore, Ghulam Mustafa, wrote things like this. There are great similarities in contents and ideals of what poet Emperor Rabindranath has expressed in his lyrics. Any Muslim can accept these concepts without hesitation. 
No other poet of Bengali language has ever uttered these expressions of Muslim heart. We did not find any hostility towards Islam in the vast literature produced by Tagore. On the contrary, there is so much of Islamic content and ideals in his writings that he can be called a Muslim without hesitation. It's not too much to say that the concepts of idolatry, pluralism, atheism, reincarnation, renunciation, etc., which are considered as totally opposed to Islam, are also non-existent in his writings. Um, Tagore particularly fond not only of the Masnavi, but of Hafez. And if you go to that university now, you can see the bell, which called everybody to their morning prayers, morning meditation really, has carved into it a famous bait or line by Hafez. Marra dar manzili janan chih amno aish chun hardam, jaras faryad midarat kih barbandid mahmilha. What security and joy is there for me at the beloved's way station, when every moment the bell clangs, fasten on the camel litter's belts. Life is like a caravan, we're heading for the next world, and the belts or the bells associated with a caravan are dhikr, recollection, prayer, meditation, anything that reminds us that this is not our permanent abode. That's the kind of thought. So a very different world where the, <clears throat> the kind of Brahmanical elites that nowadays vote for Modi used to prefer reading Persian to reading Sanskrit, would often dress like Sufis and a very kind of transitional um, universe. And of course, taken as the broad historical picture, <clears throat> it was that transitional space that allowed large transfers of, <clears throat> uh, of Hindus into Islam over the centuries. It's these guys, these stepping stones that are enabling it. So at the age of 22, here is the young kind of, well, it's not the hippie age, but he's a seeker, gone to India on what later became the hippie trail. And he spends three months at this Shanti Niketan place. <clears throat> and later on in life, he was asked about his time with Tagore, and this is what he said. He knew all about the Prophet وسلم, was not ignorant of him at all because his father was a great expert on Persian poetry, was a linguist, a cultured person. His special study was Persian poetry, Hafez and Rumi, so he was well acquainted with the whole attitude of true Sufis and this Sufi influence had come into Gore's work is a reflection of what he learned of Tasawwuf. One might say he did express his respect for the Prophet I think Tagore started readings from all the sacred books every morning before Gandhi came into prominence. He had a temple of worship, but not of any particular religion. And in that, every morning, they all used to assemble there. And a Hindu used to read from the Bhagavad Gita, a Muslim used to read out of the Quran, and a Christian used to read out of the Bible, and so on. This was done as a ceremony every morning. But it seems that he thought that Tagore was a bit of an ego. Uh, and also that he had this idea that he somehow himself had the right to transcend the particulars of religion, which were all part of a perennial and universal truth and didn't really need to be bound by any of those paths. So later on, uh, Faridi says this. It is a great claim you know, that all the religions are parallel paths to the same destination. It's a great claim. Whether he can prove this claim is another matter. Anyway, it is a wrong claim because nobody rises above while he is living in the body. <laughs> he is subject to the limitations of the body. He is living in the mental world, is subject to all limitations of the human body. How can he claim to have risen above? Anyway, he may be forgiven. 
Tagore spoke of one God and of the love of God, and he stated that he respected the Prophet and the Qur'an, although he maintained that he respected the others too. So these people and how they will be treated, we can't place them in any category. They may be people of the A'raf, people who are sitting on the division, divided, dividing war with hell on this side and paradise on that side. They are wishing to enter the Jannat, but they have not yet done so. And uh, later on about the idea of perennialism, he says this. Some unconventional people claim that all religions are one, their teachings, principles are all the same. It is true to some extent that the basic principles of unity and righteousness are the same. The basic mistake is that they are not aware that in each era, Allah has colored his message with a different hue. The present age is imbued with the beneficence of the noble prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The old books of Parsi or Hindu religion may be correct, but the outpouring of divine inspiration is not found there any longer. They are like dry rivers. So Leonard quits the ashram. He sees it as idealistic, but driven by a kind of well-meaning aesthetic syncretism that proposes a truth transcending the religions that actually seems rather misty and vague. So he is propelled still by this ishq. Somewhere else in India, he's going to find what he seeks. And uh, I want to read some Rumi today. I'm going to indulge myself. Uh, Where you see the apparent universalism in Rumi and what it actually means. <laughs> Welcome, O oh delightful, sweet, beloved love. O oh, the cure for all my illnesses. Uh, you are the medicine for my pride uh, and for my strictness. You are my Plato. You are my uh, Galen. Jis mechag az ashk ber aflaki shud kohda raks amad o chalak shud. This body, which is of clay, through love has reached the heavens. The mountains have begun to dance, even though they remain conscious. Passionate love is a burning spark. And when it uh, blazes, it burns everything, except that the beloved is unhurt. Everything else is on fire. Love, if contained and not expressed with the tongue, is an ocean which has, which is so deep that it has no bottom. Sharahe aishq azman begoyam bardavam, sadqiyamat begozrat anna tamam. The passion of love, if I was able to speak of it constantly, a hundred days of judgment would come 
and I would still not have time to complete what I want to say. Aashiqi paydast azzaraye dil Nist bimari chun bimariye dil Love, to be a lover, comes from the suffering and the wailing of the heart. There is no earthly sickness that can rival the pain of, that is in the heart. Millet ashq az hamadin hajudast, ashiran ram az habum willet chudast. The religion of lovers is separate from all other religions. For lovers, madhab and milla are God Himself. Sounds like the kind of thing Tagore and Bennett and so forth would quite like. Uh, they're, they're following the religion of love, separate from the other religions. Mm. But of course we know from Rumi that he prayed and preached in the uh, great mosque in Konya and was uh, somebody who said, Man bandai Qur'anam eger jani daram man khaqirahi muhammadi muhtaram I'm the slave of the Qur'an for as long as I draw breath. I'm dust beneath the feet of the chosen one. Uh, followed a tradition. So this is what motivates uh, Shaheedullah to leave this nice but rather woolly ashram to continue. So he goes next to the town of Mirut, perhaps because some of the Bahawalpur Nawab's uh, courtiers are living there. But it's also possible that, um, you remember from last time, Idris father's Shah, Sirda Iqbal Ali Shah, who's written the first sort of Muslim-oriented book on Sufism in English, has a house there, Iqbal Manzil. So it may be that there were connections there that he was uh, looking for. In any case, he then goes to Delhi and goes to the Mazar of Nizamuddin Awliya. And here he says he found tremendous spiritual strengthening and peace. He'd been in a state of commotion, looking and not finding, and here he finds himself grounded and centred again. Uh, he goes in the direction of Bahawalpur, so he's heading west now, uh, to a place called Dera Nevab, and this is a big kind of Chishti stronghold in the subcontinent. And there he meets up with his older brother, who's also been wandering around. In Daranavab, he meets somebody who becomes a lifelong friend and uh, 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 his successor, Captain Wahid Bakhsh. And they, the three of them discussed Sufism late into the night and agreed that whoever found the true murshid, the true guide first, would tell the others. Wahid Bakhsh knows the terrain somewhat and he suggests uh, Maulana Ashraf Ali Tahanvi the great Deobandi scholar, head of the Deoband school, and a great Sufi, Chishti Sobiri, lover of Rumi, looks promising. So they take the train to Saharanpur, Tahanvi meets them at the station, and they talk to him at length in Urdu by an interpreter. Uh, the older brother, Farooq, by this time he's called Farooq, is a little bit, it likes him, but is a little bit taken aback by what he takes to be his strictness and his formalism. So they're both in a state of indecision, shall we, shan't we? And then Shahidullah has a dream in which he sees somebody else with a little girl. And this somebody else says, your share is with me. You're part of deen as well as dunya. And this is a very famous vision in the tariqah. 
So they leave Saharanpur, leave Deoband, and continue to roam, but they don't know what to do. They go to Lahore, uh, of course, Hujviri's famous Mazal there, um, Data Ganj Baksh. They live there, they look for a teacher, they can't find anybody there for several months. So then they decide this is not working. It's difficult in India. Um, we're not really part of either world. We certainly don't go to the club and clap for a bearer. But neither really are we part of the Indian thing. We're fish out of water. They decide to go back to England. The mission is not accomplished. So they go to take ship uh, in Bombay, buy their tickets. Uh, and then while they're waiting for the ship to sail, they go to the Muslim quarter and they go into a mosque to pray Asra together. Obviously, everybody notices them because they're both over six feet tall. Um, so people are kind of looking. And then somebody comes over to them after the prayer, um, engages them in conversation. And the imam talks to them and he says, oh, well, I have a teacher. You should meet him before you leave India. Sayyid Muhammad Zawqi Shah of Hyderabad. He's in Hyderabad at the time. So they basically tear up their tickets and take a train instead of the boat and they go to Hyderabad, long, difficult journey. And that's where they meet him. And of course, Faridi recognizes him as being exactly the man that is seen in his dream. And luckily, Zawqi Shah knows English actually really well. He's been to Aligarh, he's part of that sort of modern Indian Muslim world. Uh, Zawqi is already well known. You know, he's quite close to Jinnah. He knows Iqbal pretty well. He's part of that Indian Muslim elite, Shaukat Ali. Uh, highly educated, very neat and dapper, uh, very disciplined, divides his day very precisely, an expert on music and poetry, initiated and authorized to take disciples in the four majrabs, the four great tariqas of the subcontinent, the Naqshbandis, Chishti Sabiris, uh, the Qadiris, and the Sohrawardis. So, finally, you know, just when they thought they were defeated, and who knows how they would have continued in England, uh, Providence has brought them to what they had intended. Uh, they want to take Bayar, of course. <laughs> um, the man is a saint, and they see the signs of that all the time, uh, and they feel so improved by just his last one of the uh, important principles of the Chishti Sabari Principle is just the Sheikh looking at the Murid and Shahid Allah was also able to help people just, just with a glance. So they're really benefiting. They're staying in his house, uh, but they're not offered the bay'ah. The Sheikh is watching them, testing them. Mm. Who exactly are they? And he thinks, well, maybe they're like other seekers or people who come to the pier because they want something. Maybe they want to see miracles. Uh, or maybe they want the prestige of belonging to a famous tariqah. He's well aware of the fact that most people who think they want God actually are in it for some ego thing. So he just kind of maintains a watching brief. Are they looking for God or are they just looking for a way of being? But on the 3rd of October, 1938, he grants the bay'ah, an important moment. Um, because he realizes that Shahidullah is only interested in God. That's his intention. He wants to be close to his Lord. So um, let's read from 
one of Shahidullah's later writings here so that you hear from him directly rather than from me. Yeah, about the, uh, the need for a teacher, but the, the reason why some people <coughs> find it difficult. <coughs> I found chiefly that it's a sort of arrogance of temperament that some people call themselves the devotees and slaves of the noble prophet but they are too arrogant to accept any living person as anyone greater than themselves. They want to keep their neck stiff all the time and don't want to bend it before anybody living. This is arrogance and pride. They say, why should you venerate these people? And then they go to extremes and say, you worship them, which of course we don't. Nobody worships, it's only respect which is due to a master, nothing more than that. One has to humble himself before a living teacher. I don't mean to say that he has to become completely humiliated and disgraced and degraded. That is not the idea. He humbles himself to the extent that he admits before him that I don't know and you know, that I'm incompetent and you are competent. This much, that is all. Just to accept that somebody knows more than you, somebody who can teach you. Accept that he is a grade above you, that's all. People who have this pride within them hide it in so many arguments that really it's the pride that they don't want to accept anyone who is greater than themselves. And those words, of course, still, still apply. We've all got our noses in the air. So he stays in Hyderabad with the sheikh for almost a year. <coughs> a lot of discipline. This is a hard school of Sufism. Uh, early morning dhikr, a lot of ziyarat, a lot of fasting. Um, he spends all of Ramadan in the Murshid's house. They read two juz of the Qur'an every night. Uh, the Urs commemorations, really important for the Chishtiya to this day. Uh, the discipline of <coughs> obliging oneself formally to remember God every 10 minutes. <coughs> and of course, the, the difficulty of living in a country with people who are impoverished. He's very often sick, um, often loses weight quite disastrously. He's almost a skeleton at times, and people are worried about him, about the two of them. No air conditioning, temperature maybe 50 plus in the summer. He's not going to go to Simla to hang out with the <coughs> chaps at the hill station. He's gone native. Uh, and then, of course, the Second World War starts and he goes to join the army in Bahawalpur. Um, and they are both commissioned as lieutenants. Um, this helps him a little bit to recover from some of the recurrent fevers which he's had. Um, and he uses the opportunity in the army to learn Arabic and <coughs> Persian and Urdu. Later on, when he marries his wife, helps him to master Urdu as well. So towards the end of his life, he wasn't speaking English very much. Although he said he used to pray in English, interesting, and make dua in English, but his classes were, were all in Urdu. He also learned Punjabi and Pashtun, apparently. 1945, the war is over, he's demobbed. Then, of course, partition. Incidentally, I've got a few photographs of him. You might want to pass these around. I didn't bother with the PowerPoint, but they're quite evocative, just a few. 1947, partition. He moves to Karachi, where he starts a business. It's the tradition in Tasawwuf, of course, not to be a dependent monk, but to uh, work. Uh, starts in paper, of course, that's the family business blanket factory. His father, who is observing all of this with both of his sons with kind of horror, father's really rich, 
sends him money, but he refuses it. He sends it back again from the bank. Then his father sends him 50 taxis so he can start a taxi business. Then he realises that uh, given local corruption, if he actually pays his Pakistan tax bill on the taxes, he's going to make a loss. The only way he can run that business is if he's corrupt, and he refuses to do that, so the taxes just get given away. Um, at this point, uh, Pakistan exists. He renounces his British citizenship and becomes a Pakistan national. So what's happening to the older brother? Well, the older brother is William Matthew Leonard, known in the family as Pat. Uh, he's also taken the Bayat a little bit later than the younger brother. Um, but there seems to be difficulty in having it right away because it seems that Zawqi Shah regards there as, be, there as being a genuine Bayar connection between him and Shuan still. And he won't accept him as a disciple if there's still that connection. So uh, Pat has to go to Switzerland and formally sever his connection with Shuan and his order. And then he comes straight back to India. In 1940, he finally takes Bayar, um, while Zawqi Shah, who's by this time very much in Muslim League activism and is a delegate, is in Lahore for a big All India Muslim Congress event, marries a girl from Mirot. But like his brother, is living in very considerable poverty and circumstances to which his metabolism finds it difficult to adjust means that he's really sick. Uh, Malaria and pneumonia. Malaria is not really curable. You can just manage the symptoms. Um, and uh, his brother, Shahidullah, never really accustoms himself to the local food. Uh, his digestion never quite gets used to it. and is often in a state of uh, indigestion and, as I said, becomes very thin. So uh, Pat is finally taken to hospital in Lahore, 1945 really ill, seems to be on his deathbed, and his younger brother is constantly at his, his bedside, not, not eating, not leaving the hospital for days, doing dhikr. Uh, and then uh, his condition worsens. Finally, uh, Shahidullah is persuaded, you, know, you can't stay here indefinitely just by your brother, so he goes out. But then a phone call calls him back, and his brother, Farouk, has, has died. And so he sits by the bed with his brother's body there and wondering whether maybe he's made a mistake coming to India. This is such a horrible disaster. Um, but then he has uh, a vision. Uh, he sees the awliya uh, around his bed in the presence of the Holy Prophet. And this is a true vision, stays with him for the rest of his life. And that's a kind of consolation for him. Uh, the two are kind of known in Lahore and a local civil servant who has a kind of reserved grave spot in the Mazar complex of Hujwiri offers him his space and so Farouk is buried there pretty close to Hujwiri and to this day if you, if you know how to find your way through the complex which is a very subtle place um, you can find the tomb of Farouk Saab the Englishman Pat Leonard, who is buried there as a Muslim peer, and people come for ziyara. So that's a that's a blow, because they've been very close.
1946, at the age of 31, he gets married. His Murshid's daughter, Rashida, remember the dream. So they marry in Ajmer Sharif. This had been on the cards for some time, and it's clear that this was the little girl that had originally seen um, with Zalqi Shah in his initial dream in Delhi. Uh, and it had been on the cards for some time, but clearly a sign of the Sheikh's respect for him. And later she used to say that once when in the house she was coming downstairs, he looked at her twice. Uh, before the Umad looked at her twice. And so she went to her father complaining, saying, well, who are these people you have in your house? And kind of looking at the daughters of the house. And after they were married, he'd explained, he'd looked at her a, se a second time to make sure that she was the same woman that he'd seen in the dream. And he's always a very attentive husband. When they had a garden, he would always pick flowers from the garden and put out flowers for her um, every day. Um, and in his will, he provided for his wife. He appointed, designated five murids who, after his death, would take care of her. And she actually is very competent, uh, takes over most of the functions of the tariqah after his death. She dies in 1990. The next event is 1951, when Zawqi Shah uh, prepares to go to the Hajj and the disciples accompany the Murshid Basra to Baghdad. They take the train for the ziyarah. Abdul Qadir Jilani there. Um, and then in Medina, specific practices, very sober. Remember, this is a sober kind of tariqah. Zawqisha advises just one ziyara to the tomb every day, no more. Stand in silence, don't ask for anything. All of the tariqah's awrad are cancelled except just for salawat. And from Asr until Aisha, they would sit in the sofa. That was their practice. Then Ihram, Umrah, Tamatta, uh, Mina, Arafat, uh, all kinds of dreams, openings, joyful prayers. Zawqi Shah, however, dies on Arafat, on the day of Arafat. So a climax, but also a calamity. So they return, and he immediately has to take on responsibilities because his wife is the only surviving member of the sheikhs family um, and of the Sinsila. Uh, but there's no designated successor, familiar situation. Uh, we know that Zawqi Shah had frequently requested Shahidullah to lead the Dhikr circles. After his death, he was very reluctant to accept any kind of leadership responsibility. Remember the kind of guiding theme of these lectures that you don't seek authority, the prophetic command. But then he has a dream of Pakbatan Sharif, where he sees uh, the great Baba Farid showing him how to take bay'ah from people, which is a specific way, quite unlike Zawqi Shah's method. Um, and that's one reason why he has the subriquet Faridi, because he has a particular connection to uh, Baba Farid. And he maintains this style of taking bay'ah, which is Baba Farid, throughout his life. A number of other tariqah members have dreams and visions, and so reluctantly he agrees he's going to take on this massive responsibility. Conditions for bay'ah, you have to guard the three ayns. Ilm, aql, ishq, knowledge, the mind, love. These are the three eyes with which you perceive 
which have to be regulated. Now, Zalpisha didn't have much of a permission or a vocation for large numbers of disciples. But with Faridi, it was very different and thousands upon thousands of people, mainly in Pakistan, but also in India, in Rangpur, in what's now Bangladesh, there are still his disciples there, um, suddenly becomes a, a mass, mass movement. Um, quite often, they come, as is common, to discuss worldly matters, marriage issues, what should I do with my business? He was noted for his patience with such people, carried on a very extensive correspondence, some of the people were from the elites, but generally it was the poor people that seemed to have uh, found his gatherings uh, effective. So uh, the centre of gravity now, because of partition, which has disrupted so much in Muslim India, has shifted from Ajmer to Pakpatan, uh, and a kind of small house was opened for him there, and great simplicity was always his watchword. Most of his life he lived just in a single room, sitting on the floor. He's not been back to England for all this time, but in 1956, his mother, Ruth, is very sick, so he goes back to England to see her. It's his first trip for 16 years. And he reported that uh, on her deathbed, she did make her shahada, dying for shortly afterwards. And she offered him some jewellery, but he refused it. He only took one small thing, which was a kind of memento, just to have something to remember her by. Returns to these responsibilities and uh, Sunday mornings were his great time for teaching, uh, much of which took the form of darsi hadith, hadith commentary. He would also like to read the famous uh, letters, <coughs> uh, the Maktubati Sadi, the hundred letters of Sharafuddin Manari, very early Sufi of uh, North India. It's been translated by um, Paul Jackson into English. Um, he was a disciple of Nizamuddin Awliya and a uh, very popular form of teaching in, in the Chishti world. Uh, another text he liked was the Awarif al-Ma'arif of Abu Hafs, a Sohrawardi, major text obviously for the Sohrawardiya, uh, and one of the great four or five best-known introductory manuals to the fullness of Islam, the outward form and the inward meaning. Uh, after their dhikr, they would often read from the uh, writings of Zawqi Shah, and then he would provide a commentary of his own. Form of the dhikr. Again, this is um, one of the books which you can't really get in this country, um, but which is a collection of uh, talks that were taped and then transcribed, so that the form is fairly informal. Some nice things about dhikr. <clears throat> in Surah Al-Muzammil, Allah has himself commanded the Holy Prophet to remember him. Remember the name of thy Lord and isolate yourself to him in total isolation. This means to remember the name of your Rabb, Master, Lord. He has mentioned the word name particularly. He is not just simply said to remember Allah, but to remember the name. So this is significant. There is some hidden purpose in taking the name, whether you take it aloud with your voice or you say it with the inner voice which we have. We can say something with an inner voice with no outward expression. Still the name is there where words are formulated. We can formulate words in the heart too. There is a definite purpose in the name. 
That is why, to begin with, people are given this teaching of repeating the name of Allah. Simply repeating it as a word or a sound, of course, is not the aim. The aim is to fill one's soul with this feeling of his presence, to become perfectly conscious of his presence. This is possible in this way because when we call upon Allah, he is present. It says in the Qur'an, Ud'uni astajib lakum. Call upon me and I will reply. In the hadith, the noble prophet وسلم, has made it clear to us. In fact, he has given it in the words of Allah that Allah says that I am with that person who remembers me. Words of this kind, that I am with that person who remembers me. That means to say that he then comes. You call him, so he comes. He is present. It is not only our own effort. If it were our own effort, then we can call and call and we would never gain anything by it. But it's not like this. When we call, then he comes. And by this attempt, we try to fill ourselves with his consciousness. This is really done by him, not by us. What is required is, there are so many expressions, one speaks of self-sacrifice, self-abnegation. Abnegation, of course, means to deny oneself. Although usually self-abnegation means to deny oneself the things which one likes, <coughs> here I am using the word in a different sense. That is, to deny oneself altogether. People talk about some other expression like self-annihilation and self-obliteration. What one has to do is to try to remove these thoughts of self, that I want this and I want that, I feel this and so on. Try to feel Allah only. Of course, at first you will feel yourself at Allah because a person has a feeling of his own existence. This is something natural to a person. He cannot rid himself of this feeling that I am. This is his basic being. In fact, some philosophers have said that this is the basis of all knowledge. It is true because before all knowledge comes this feeling and this knowledge that I am, I exist. There comes a stage, as Imam Ghazali has pointed out, in fact, all the Sufis have pointed out, that when a person gets so totally absorbed in the object of his remembrance and has really filled himself with this consciousness that he forgets even this basic consciousness of I am. He even goes beyond this. He has no awareness of his own existence. This is the perfection of this process of trying to become absorbed, absorbed in the consciousness of his presence, the awareness of his presence. So this is what dhikr means. And there's more. Um, from, this is from actually one of his, his classes. He writes a number of books, some of them based on his many discourses, Tarbiyat al-Ushaq, which is basically a compilation which he put together of his teacher, Zalqi Shah's teachings. He has what is probably in English his best-known book, Inner Aspects of Faith, which does sometimes appear in some bookshops in the UK. And also these Malfuzat, printed as Spirituality and Religion, a very basic introduction to Islam book called Everyday Practice in Islam, how to pray, how to fast, why to pray, why to fast, and so on. <coughs> but also helped the Chishti community by writing to the British Library and obtaining manuscripts <coughs> of Chishti texts, which he then translated into Urdu. We've seen that his finding his existence in the subcontinent uh, very taxing physically. Um, and at the age of 59, he has his first heart attack. He's hospitalized for two months. He used to describe illness as the zakat of the body. It's kind of something that you give, and it's a sort of purification. 
um, insisted on uh, continuing with his practices and seeing his disciples. Um, and I mean, just as an example of the, his insistence of following the prophetic example of living with the poor, uh, when he first moved to Karachi, he moved to a room above a baker's shop. And Karachi is pretty hot, but above a baker's shop is like being in the oven. But he stayed there for a very long time in that extraordinarily difficult circumstance. Um, so you can imagine it takes a toll on his health. 1978, ill again, taken to hospital again. Uh, while he's there, he's apparently more concerned with his wife's health than, than his own. Goes into intensive care. And then one of the last things that he says is, who are all those men dressed in white? Are they tablighis? Uh, then he realised that the time has come for him to depart. This is it. Um, <coughs> uh, people also realised that the last halqa, the last circle of teaching he'd ever given, he actually ended it with the words Khuda Hafiz, and he'd never done that before. So people thought, well, this is some kind of valediction. So on the 17th of Ramadan, he dies. Next day, he's buried in the Sakhi Hassan Cemetery in Karachi. Um, and he appoints um, Siraj Ali as a Khalifa, he dies in 2009. Janazah is obviously a big thing in Karachi, attended by a lot of people. Um, according to one of the people who uh, wrote to me, there was a 13-year-old boy in Karachi who saw a dream in which the Holy Prophet was leading a Janazah prayer. When he woke up, he learned that his neighbor Shahidullah Faridi had died, and he went to the Janaz and he saw it was in exactly the same form. So, this is the outward sort of contours of his life. Uh, things to bear in mind that his was a way of sahu, not of sukkur. That is to say, of sobriety. He was a very calm person. He was not inclined to intoxicated, ecstatic, dancing expressions of religion. Uh, even though he lived in very considerable poverty, to the exasperation of his parents, he said, do not reject the world, but abstain from it. Very gentle in his techniques. Uh, if people had problems with drink, addiction, and so forth, neglecting prayers, uh, he would wean them very gently away from those things rather than being stern with them and risking driving them away. And usually his instruction to people, his advice, would take the form of indirect hints rather than commands. Um, here's another uh, thing from an email uh, from somebody who heard things from his father who was his disciple. <coughs> um, which again indicates this kind of moderate and uh, sober type of religion and the dangers of alternatives. One other story which my father related to me and which I find particularly significant in light of the lecture Shahidullah Faridi gave about the importance of a sheikh in protecting a murid from the overwhelming effects of the practices of tasawwuf. My father, who was a small boy at the time, had an older cousin in his early 20s who would often visit Shahidullah and sit quietly in the corner and observe as others interacted with the Sheikh. Finally, after many visits, Shahidullah asked him what he seeks. My father's cousin told him, 
I want to experience closeness to Allah. Please would you remove the veil that separates me from him. Shahidullah replied in the negative, warning him that he was too immature spiritually to bear the burden of that closeness. My father's cousin persisted through several subsequent visits and finally Shahidullah relented. It's unclear exactly how it happened, but the short of it is that Shahidullah removed the veil. For the subsequent several days, my father's cousin went into a majzoub state, repeating again and again only that the majesty of what he was seeing was too great for him to bear. I'm paraphrasing here. After several days of this, my father's cousin's mother, sick with worry, visited Shahidullah and asked him to undo whatever it was that he had done. Shahidullah summoned my father's cousin and undid the unveiling, <coughs> returning the young man to his former state. My father was a small boy at the time, so the memories are a bit broad in their strokes, but it's another story I thought worth sharing. So, yeah, it's a kind of very classical medieval image of sainthood. There's no kind of modernism or fundamentalism or anything about this. He'd plunged absolutely into the heart of the normative tradition. Um, uh, and the poverty in particular uh, impressed people a lot. When his father died, he wouldn't touch the inheritance, which he made over to his sister instead who calculated that the dividend from the investments was around two million pounds a year. So it's really turning down a fortune. He always wore simple dress and was going to weddings. And if you look at pictures of him, you can see that he doesn't wear the kind of big turban thing uh, that is common amongst sheikhs in some cultures. Usually he dressed very simply. Uh, he accepted music, is in the Chishti tradition, and he listened to it. He enjoyed reading the novels of P.J. Wodehouse, apparently, Jeeves and Worcester. Um, another thing that he taught was that one should not emigrate to the West for nafsaniyat, he said. Uh, they should stay in Pakistan and benefit it, they will be happier. So he himself had emulated the hijra, the migration of the Holy Prophet, to and for Islam. And he says, if you put your child in a pool of water, he will definitely get wet. So watch out, sending your children to schools in the West. And he says those who've studied in the West should return as soon as possible in order to benefit their people. Meticulous in his following of the Sunnah, and even people point out that his, his bay'ah came at the age of 40, and his death came at the age of 63. So there's prophetic parallels there um, very, very clearly. Humble, like the Holy Prophet, he would ask advice from children very strong spiritual attachment to the Holy Prophet, Salawat, amongst his most beloved devotions. Dhikr, particularly Mondays and Thursdays, um, emphasized the importance of constant making of small efforts. Mujahada, he said that even delaying a small desire for 10 minutes is very helpful. So I won't eat that bar of chocolate now, but in 10 minutes time, even that, he says, is good for you. Um, or changing one's resolution. If you have a habit that you always walk in a particular way, change it, walk in a different way. That helps you to wake up and be more alert. He says, people these days are weak, can carry little, so you have to give them these basic disciplines. Uh, again, the poverty. <coughs> Sometimes he wouldn't teach from a book because he couldn't afford to buy it. Love of nature. When he moved out of this room above the bakery, which apparently was 
just six feet long. Um, some of the disciples said actually he couldn't stretch out in it. That's one of their recollections. So then he moved into a kind of bungalow. He had a garden. He had a love of nature. Um, famous for the answerability of his prayers. Sometimes people observed that they would go to the sheikh with the intention of asking a question, but through his firasa, he would answer the question before they asked it, which again is very standard if you've associated with awliya. So I'm going to end just with one of his disciples' eulogies, the ors that they have there. I've not been in this place in Karachi. is still a big event, and those people are still there, still publishing. Um, but this is a eulogy by one of his disciples. Ruzu shabdara ashqi mawla janin azukra basukht, sukhta khudra baraye zinati imani ma, ishqi ora hadnabud, uzabti ora hadnabud, ubazahir marda insan gharq herdam dar khuda. Which they translate like this Day and night he burnt his frail self in the love of his Lord. He burnt his own self in order to improve our faith. His love had no limit, limit, his composure no bounds. Visibly a human, but constantly immersed in God. It's very kind of unlike, say, the Ahmad Bullock story or the other convert stories which we've looked at. Here we have the case of somebody who makes a permanent hijra eastwards and immerses himself 100% in the local culture, even loses his British passport because he just wants to be with, with these people in his adopted country, Pakistan. It's an interesting kind of counter-migration, perhaps the sociologists would call it. Um, so, yeah, I'm still working on this. I still get uh, random emails from people, some of whom have died um, not long ago. But, uh, inshallah, uh, one day there'll be a more substantive uh, biography, although probably that's the last thing he would have wanted. So, rahmatullahi ali wa an. Alhamdulillah, we don't usually do questions after this, uh, and this has gone on for too long as usual. Thank you for your attention. Inshallah, there is barakah and hudur, bi dhikrihim tanzilur rahmah, by mentioning the pure one's mercy descends. Thank you all very much. Assalamu alaikum. Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers.